Good morning. Um, for those who don't know me, uh, my name is Jessica Wilkinson. I've been part of this church for many years, and um, I do a lot of teaching at the church, but I have to confess that I am more comfortable uh, facilitating a conversation in a classroom than I am standing up here and speaking. But uh, Scott and his family are in Scotland for two weeks, visiting his mom, And the original speaker for today was unable to make it. So a little less than two weeks ago, Scott asked me if if I would uh, preach this morning. And so what do you do when you've got a kind of short notice to put something together? Uh, You draw from what God has been teaching you and what you've been meditating on yourself lately. So that's what uh, I'm going to be doing this morning. So, um, Scott's been in this series, Hashtag Blessed, and um, so over the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, he spoke about the origin of blessing, and, and specifically spoken blessing. And then last week, he talked about patterns of blessing, who and what, so the fact that God blesses people, people bless each other, and people bless God. And then when he returns, he's going to be speaking about how we speak blessing. This morning, I'm going to be talking about something that is found to all of this. Um, So one of the things that Scott mentioned in his first sermon uh, in this series is blessing is relational. And he said, the blessed life is rooted in intimate relationship with the one who blessed us. Do you ever think about what a strange term that is to talk about an intimate relationship with God, the creator of the universe? <laughs> um, you know, he's this all-powerful, awesome, maybe even intimidating being, if you don't know him well. And so far above us, it's easy to think of him as being unknowable. Who are we to think that he would want to, des- to have a close, intimate relationship with fault- flawed creatures like us. There was a British mathematician and philosopher, uh, Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist. And he was asked one time that, what if it turns out that you're wrong, and there really is a God, and you find yourself standing in front of him one day? What would you say to him? And his rather famous response was, Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? And I heard that several years ago, and I've thought about it, and I'm like, that's not the God I know. God is not a God who hides. He's a God who desires to be known. A a God who desires to have a relationship with us and to reveal himself to us. He is a God of revelation. And so our passage this morning is in Exodus. And to give some context this morning, um, the people of Israel have been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. For generations, they have been immersed in the Egyptian culture. It's eroded their knowledge and trust of the God of their ancestors. There had been a brief flash of hope when Moses, 
this one of their own who had been raised in the palace, returned from a 40-year exile, basically, um, with this fantastic story about having encountered God himself and being sent by God to deliver them from bondage. But just as quickly as hope had flickered um, to life, it was extinguished. Because Moses' plea to Pharaoh had been turned down, and not only that, Pharaoh had um, been more brutal to the Israelite slaves. He had increased their workload. And so now Moses has come to God demanding to know why he even bothered to send him. I mean, Moses didn't want to do this in the first place. Um, And he's accusing him of doing nothing to free the Israelites. And this that we're going to look at this morning is God's response. So in Exodus 6, we're going to read 2 through 8. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. Under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan where they were living as foreigners. You can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians. And I am well aware of my covenant with them. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and you will and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. And I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as your very own possession. I am the Lord." Notice throughout all of this how many times God had made either a declaration of who he was or mentioned that they would know who he was. He starts out, I am Yahweh. Until now, I've been known as El Shaddai. I am the Lord, and therefore I will free you. I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God. And then at the end, I am the Lord. In other words, you can trust me and and this promise that I've made. God's revelation is progressive, and it has a lot of layers to it, kind of like uh, peeling back an onion. And so we're going to look at kind of three layers we see um, evidenced in Exodus. So the first is knowing God as power, as creator, he's the almighty Um, He's able to give or take away as promise keeper, as unchanging, faithful, keeping his promises, protector, provider, healer, all that kind of goes into that. And then finally, as presence, as the God who dwells with us. He doesn't just give good things, but he walks with us and we can have communion with him. So we're going to start by looking at God's revelation to us as power. And in its most basic form, it's available to all, right? We see God as creator. We see his creation. Psalm 119, the heavens proclaim, or Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. 
The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. We just have to look around us and know that he is the creator. Um, and then back in our Exodus 6 path, passage, it, he said, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, or God Almighty. We first see him refer to himself as that in Genesis 17:1, When he comes to Abraham, he says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant by, with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. So if we look at that term for a moment, El Shaddai, that name, El was a generic word for God, all of the similar language groups. And that can be God with an uppercase G or God with a lowercase G, just like our word God. Um, and many of the Hebrew names for God use that term El followed by a descriptor. So that's what we see here is El Shaddai, translated God Almighty, is the God who is almighty, all-sufficient. He's all-powerful, the source of blessing and nourishment. And so God is making a covenant with Abram and stating that he has the power to make his promise come true. You wouldn't think so when you first look at what he's promising. Abram's 99 years old, and he's promising to make him a father of nations with many descendants. And later in the passage, he clarifies this is descendants through Sarah, his, his barren wife. Um, but God had the ability, the power, to keep that promise. We see in Exodus that God desires not just his own people to know him as almighty and powerful, but he uses that power to display himself to others outside of the Israelites. Exodus 7, he talks about um, Pharaoh's reaction to the request to, to free the Israelites. He says, I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn so that I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Notice there's intentionality here. Even then, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. So I will bring down my fist on Egypt. Then I will rescue my force, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. There was a purpose to all that's going on here, and it's so that the Egyptians would even know who God is, whether they chose to acknowledge it or not. Even today, our knowledge of God usually starts with him as, with an awareness of him as creator, as the source of blessing, and that much, it's even still present in our language, even if our culture doesn't really believe it, right? We talk about God made me this way, or um, God gave this to me, and even if people who don't really believe it, we'll use language that says that sometimes. As we continue to grow in our knowledge of God, 
we come to know him not just as this all-powerful being, but as a promise keeper. And back in uh, Exodus 6, God made the statement that he did not reveal himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Yahweh, but as El Shaddai. And I've thought a lot about that because it seems like a pretty significant thing. He makes a point of saying this. So why does God point this out? They used the word Yahweh in Genesis. So they had used the term, but they hadn't experienced God as Yahweh. And we'll talk about what the connotations behind that name are. They had experienced him as El Shaddai, the powerful God that swoops in and rescues them or provides a particular blessing. Um, And they still needed to experience him as Yahweh. They knew that God could keep his promise, but would he? From their perspective, it didn't look like it. They'd been in slavery for 430 years. It looked like they were further away from getting the promise of inheriting the land of Canaan than they've ever been. So in his response to Moses in Exodus 6, God tells Moses to watch and see. And he reminds Moses of who he is, Yahweh. They've experienced God as El Shaddai. They're about to experience him as Yahweh. So I want to look at that name, Yahweh, for a moment. We see it in Exodus 3, the episode of the burning bush. And Moses protests, if I go to the people of Israel and tell tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they'll ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Yahweh is a name for God, but it is packed with so much meaning. It's rooted in the verb to be, and it has both a present and a future tense. So you could translate it at the same time as, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It speaks to the eternity of God. It speaks to his self-existence, self-determination. Nothing created him, nothing defined who God is. He defined himself. And then the unchanging nature of God over time. I am who I am in this moment. I will be in the future. I was in the past. One commentator wrote, this signifies the real being of God, his self-existence, and that he is the being of beings, as also it denotes his eternity and immutability and his constancy and faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. For it includes all time, past, present, and to come. The sense is, not only am I am what I am at the present, but I am what I have been, I am what I shall be, and shall be what I am. 
Because he is Yahweh, Moses and Israel can trust that he not only can keep his promise of deliverance, but that he certainly will, because he's the same God who made the promise in the first place. Knowing God as Yahweh, the promise keeper, was a place where Israel as a whole struggled. And if we're honest, so do we, right? We struggle to learn that God is faithful, that he can be depended on, and come to that point of complete trust. But God used the exodus and the events that occurred to continue to reveal this to the Israelites, to kind of pound it home. You know, when they first crossed the Red Sea, they, they were like overjoyed, right? There's this psalm of praise in Exodus 15 where they're singing of God and his rescue. And they, they talk about his unfailing love. And he says, you'll guide them to your sacred home. So they're, they're trusting. They've just seen this miracle on their behalf. But then they travel three days. They run out of water. And where they land, uh, the water is undrinkable. And so God uses, you know, he miraculously makes the water drinkable. And he uses that to teach them, I am the Lord who heals you. It's one more aspect of who God is, that they can depend on him. A month after leaving Egypt, they're finding they're running out of food and they're complaining again. And God sends quail and manna. And he tells Moses, he's going to do this, and he adds, then you will know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God. In other words, I can be trusted. I am faithful. Even with all that, less than a month later, they they come to a new camp, and there's no water once again. And as they're complaining and accusing Moses, the question that they're asking is, is the Lord here with us or not? God could have just washed his hands of them and said, you guys just don't get it. But he doesn't. He very patiently, he brings out water from a rock, another miraculous event to show them that he is faithful and dependable and that he can provide for them and deliver them. And then just after that, while they're still at that same place, an enemy army, the Amalekites, comes and attacks them. God miraculously gives them victory as Moses prays and holds his rod up. And after their victory, Moses builds an altar which he names Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. In other words, it's God who directs us as an army and who aids us and gives us victory. So again, they're continuing to learn these things about God and he continues to show himself to them so that they would know what it, mean, what it meant that he is Yahweh, the eternal, unchanging promise keeper. We see even in the New Testament and in our own lives, we see him continue to do these things to show us that he is dependable, unchanging. With the incarnation of Jesus, his death and his resurrection, Yahweh established a new covenant with all of us, not just with Israel. And as he reveals himself to each of us, we learn to trust that he is who he says he is and that he will keep that covenant 
We trust that Jesus will come again, that we will be with him for eternity. And as we follow him, we come to know him more fully. He, we see what he does in our life to provide, to um, keep his promises, to show up. And we start to understand just a little bit more about him. And we continue to plumb the depths of who he is for a lifetime. Up to this point in Exodus, God's revelation has been, it's personal. I mean, this is their lives they're talk, he's, we're talking about. It's, it's food that they need to eat. It's, it's personal needs. But it's still been somewhat remote. God is the being out there who is rescuing me and providing what I need. Um, And it's possible even for us when we're in that same place with God to kind of keep it at that academic level, a transactional type of thing. God, I need this, so I come to you. And yes, that's good. But that's not all there is. There's a relationship there. And that's when God starts to move into bringing us into his presence and helping us to understand that. So back in Exodus 6, verse 7, God had promised to have a relationship with Israel. He had said, I will be your God. Once they reach Exodus 19, he speaks more of the relationship that he wants to have with them. Moses climbs the mountain to appear before God, and um, the Lord calls to him from the mountain and says, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation." This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. The people had seen God act on their behalf. They now knew he could be counted on to protect and to provide. Before he had promised to be their God, but now he takes it just a step further. He says, you will be my own special treasure. There's a world of difference between somebody who is going to be your supervisor or your mentor And somebody who says, you're special to me and treasured. And that's what God is doing to Israel here. He also reveals that he desires partnership with them. He's calling them to be a kingdom of priests, to be his agents in the world, to spread the knowledge of him and help others to experience Yahweh, to be the agents of blessing. And Scott's mentioned this several times in his previous sermons, But that same offer of intimacy, that same mission has now been given to the church. We see it in 1 Peter 2, where he says to us, you are a chosen people, you are royal priests, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. Throughout the biblical narrative, we see God's revelation continue to progress. And he only seems to reveal the next piece, the next layer, once we're ready. 
The people of Israel were not yet ready at this point in the Exodus for more revelation from God. They were still struggling to grasp what he had already shown them, to know that he was faithful and could be trusted. We only have to look at uh, Exodus 32 to know this, where we have the golden calf incident. Because Moses has been up at the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And they're like, yeah, that guy, I don't even know what happened to him or where he is. So we're just going to create this, this golden statue. And Israel, this is the God that took you out of Egypt. <laughs> because they could see it. They felt it was more trustworthy than the God who had been with them and led them out of Egypt. But for Moses, it was a different story. In Exodus 33, we see that when Moses would go into the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. I mean, just, I don't know, I can think of what that would be like. Um, Moses understood the value of presence. Remember a few weeks ago, we had our renaming day, and Steve Fowler was here, and he talked about this scene in Exodus 33, where God tells Moses that, sure, I'll still keep my promise. You'll, I'll give you the promised land. I'll send an angel before you to clear out all the enemies. You'll get it, but I'm not going to go with you because if I do, I might just wipe these people out. But Moses says, no way. That's a hard no. I do not want to take a single step without your presence. And if you look at his response, he says, if it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. And later he says, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. And so God grants Moses' request, and he tells them, yes, his presence will go with them. And Moses dares goes even further. Remember, this is the God who wants us to know him more. And he says, God, show me your glory. And so God kind of hides Moses in the, in the cleft in the rock, and he passes before him and lets Moses see him from behind. And as he passes, he declares his goodness and his compassion. And so it's yet more understanding that Moses is getting of who God is. We see Moses repeatedly, repeatedly requesting to know more God more fully and to, for him to be more present with him. And God is only too happy to grant those requests. And we see this emphasis on God as presence throughout the scripture. As the Israelites continued on their journey, they had the tabernacle once they made it into the promised land, they eventually built the temple. In both places, God's spirit dwelled in that structure. And then, of course, when we reach the New Testament, we have Jesus coming as Emmanuel, 
God with us. And then at the point of Jesus' death, the veil being torn in two, giving us free access into his presence. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus had promised in John, that we would receive an advocate who would never leave us, who would dwell with us always and in us, and would reveal truth to us, continuing to help us to know him more, to be present with us. When Steve Fowler spoke a few weeks ago, he challenged us as a church to continue the, the, to pursue the manifest presence of God in our church. And what I challenge each of us to do this morning is to continue to pursue it in our in individual lives, to trust that God desires to be present with us in a noticeable and tangible way, and that as we seek and pursue him, he will grant our request. So, some of you know, Ron and I are buying a new house. <laughs> yes, very excited. Um, so we did, as we went through the process, we did our research, the inspection's complete, and we're all in. We've signed the contract, we're just waiting for the closing date. And I've only been in the house twice, but I'm so excited about it, I've spent way too much time um, just poring over the, the online listing for the house. I have spent probably hours, if you all did all together, looking at the pictures and planning where I'm going to put furniture. And it's, you know, just studying every detail I can about it. We've started making purchases and plans for the next coming months in light of the fact that we're going to be in this new house. It's affecting how we make decisions. I feel like I know this house. I know the good and the bad in the inspection report. I know the layout. I know what features it has. I know what the neighborhood's like. And I know how I'm going to use each room. But what if I stopped at this point and didn't progress any further? What if we never actually moved in? <laughs> it would be sad. It would be disappointing. I would cry. Um, <laughs> but, um, and frankly, it would be silly. And I would miss so much by never experiencing being fully present in my everyday life in this house. And when it comes to knowing God, it's much the same. In my own life, I feel like I'm only starting to move in. I've got some furniture and some boxes moved, but I haven't yet fully unpacked. I love to study this book. And I spend a lot of time in it, more than I've spent studying the listing for the house. Um, over the last decade, I've developed regular spiritual habits, um, spending daily time in God's Word, um, spending time in prayer. But over the last couple of years, God's been working to show me there are more ways to experience Him. He's been at work reframing in my idea of what it means to truly seek him. And I'm exploring new spiritual practices, things like times of silence to wait and listen on him, times of retreat, 
And mostly, I'm just accepting his invitation to know and experience his presence more fully. And I'm asking him to show me what it means to walk through life experiencing his presence and speaking with him as one speaks to a friend. I'm asking him to let me see where his goodness and compassion is at work in my life. So in way of application this morning, I'd like to ask this week that you remember, think about how has God revealed new truths about himself to you in the past? What are some specific ways that he's helped you connect dots in a way that you hadn't before and you reach that new layer of understanding of him? And then spend some time reflecting. Where are you in this progression of knowing God? If we return to the analogy of buying the house, where are you in the process? Are you still shopping around? You're still researching and exploring? You might know him as a power, as creator, but you haven't yet made a decision to follow Christ. Or are you all in? The purchase is made, or it's at least in progress. You're a follower of Christ. You may know a lot about him. You might know your Bible really well. You know him as the promise keeper, your protector and your provider. And just like I visited our house, new house a couple of times, you may have had some experience of his presence in your life at specific times. Or are you fully moved in? Do you live every day in the knowledge and awareness of his presence with you? Do you have spiritual, healthy spiritual practices that create the space and the expectation in your life for him to move and to act? So in the way of response this week, I'm just inviting you to accept his invitation to know him more fully and intimately, to know that this is what he desires. He desires a relationship with you. If you're shopping around, being here this morning is a good start to doing your research. Keep on. Um, he, keep asking questions. He wants to answer them for you. Talk to someone who you know who can tell you more. Then make the decision. Decide to go all in, to sign the contract, as it were. For those who are already all in, I encourage you to keep studying your Bible. Pour over it and learn all there is to know. Make it a regular habit, but don't start, stop there. Move in. Like Moses, make your requests to God. Help me to know your ways so I can understand you more fully. Don't ask me to take another step unless your presence is right here with me. Show me your glorious presence. And then make the space in your life through your habits and your practices for him to do just that. Spend quality time in prayerful conversation with him. Learn to look for his presence and activity in everything around you. If you've already moved in and are feeling quite settled, first stop. There is still more of Jesus to discover. He is Yahweh, the eternal. And I firmly believe that we can never in our lifetime on earth reach the bottom of the depths of what he wants to reveal to us. Continue to seek him. 
continue to ask for fresh revelation of him. As he did with Moses and others, so I, will, I believe he will do with you. He will grant your requests with your, in accordance with your readiness for more. Thank you.